Amen. All right, well, we're there in John chapter number four. And like we've already talked about, we started a brand new series last week called Encounters with Christ. And we are just going through the Gospels and listening in on conversations that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, had with individuals. Last week we started uh, with probably the most famous encounter with Christ, which was uh, the conversation between Christ and Nicodemus. And uh, today we are continuing with what is possibly the second most famous uh, encounter that Christ had, and that is the woman at uh, the well. And what we are focusing on uh, for the summer months is learning about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not focusing on the parables and we're not focusing on the miracles, but we're just kind of being like flies on a wall and we're just listening in uh, on conversations that Christ had, how he dealt with people, how he interacted with people. And in this story, I want you to notice that we find the Lord Jesus Christ is traveling. If you look at verse 1, the Bible says this, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, notice what the Bible says in verse 3, he left Judea. Now, Here's what you need to understand about the nation of Israel. Judea was in the southern part of Israel, and he left Judea, and he's traveling north, the Bible says, and departed again into Galilee. So he is traveling from the southern part of Israel to the northern part of Israel, and he's traveling from uh, Judea, which you, we find in the Gospels that there's a lot of ministry that went on for the Lord in uh, uh, the southern uh, tribe of Judea, that area. And then, of course, in Galilee, he had a great ministry up in Galilee. But as he's traveling from the south to the north, the Bible says in verse 4, he must needs go through Samaria. Now, between Judea and Galilee, there is a section there which is known as the area of Samaria, where the Samaritans live. And we'll talk a little bit about the Samaritans here in a little bit. But what I want you to notice in this passage is that what we're really doing uh, uh, today is we're going soul winning with the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, we see Jesus as a soul winner and, of course, as the greatest soul winner who ever lived. And he is witnessing, he is preaching the gospel, he is presenting the gospel to this woman at the well, and we're going to learn some lessons about soul winning from the greatest soul winner who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, soul winning, uh, the Bible talks about he that winneth souls is wise in the book of Proverbs, and soul winning is a big thing and a big deal for us here at Verity Baptist Church, because this is what God has called us to do. When we go out and we confront people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not confrontational, we're not rude, but we bring the gospel to them, and we learn this from the Lord Jesus Christ. There's many examples throughout the Bible, but here we'll see one. And I'd like to apply and make some applications in regards to soul winning, uh, uh, you know, from this passage. And we go out as a church uh, corporately. We have times when we go out on Saturday mornings, on Sunday afternoons, on Thursday afternoons, and we go out in the community and we preach the gospel to people. But I want you to notice, and if you're taking notes, uh, and I'd encourage you to take some notes, on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write down some notes. I'd like you to notice three different uh, areas here in regards to soul winning and the greatest soul winning. The first one is this. We see the pursuit of the soul winner. And I want you to notice that Jesus was looking for opportunities to present the gospel. Again, we saw that he's traveling from Judea to Galilee. He's having to go through Samaria. Samaria. Look at verse 4 again. The Bible says this, and he, that's Jesus. I want you to notice this wording. It says, must needs go through Samaria. Must needs go through Samaria. Now, here's what you need to understand, and we can spend a lot of time on this, and I'm not going to. 
But the Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jews. The Samaritans were considered half-breeds. They were considered uh, uh, people that were half-Jew and half-Gentile. And we don't have time to go into it, but if you, if you study the Old Testament, you'll remember that the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was taken over by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom was taken over by the Babylonians. When the southern kingdom, who fell uh, later, was taken over by the Babylonians, they were carried away captive into Babylon, and we know that they made it into different uh, places, into uh, uh, Persia and uh, the, the, the different empires and things like that. When the northern kingdom was taken over by the Assyrians, they also were taken captive, but many were left there in the northern kingdom. And what the Assyrian nation did is they intermingled with the Jews of that day. In fact, if you study history, you'll learn that the Assyrian Empire was known for this. They would often take over, as they were taking over different lands or regions, they would intermingle themselves uh, and have their children marry the children of the people of that land and intermingle the culture. And that's exactly what they did. And as a result, the Jews began to reject the Samaritans because they were no longer purely Jewish in their eyes. They were these half-breed, these half-Assyrian, half-Gentile, half-Jewish people, and they were despised. As we'll see here in the story, the Jews would have no dealings with the Samaritans as a result of this. We're told by history that the Jews would often bypass Samaria. They would not even go through Samaria. They would take the long route around Samaria in order to avoid it because there was a racist aspect to it and there was a religious aspect, as we'll see in the story here as well. The Samaritans worshipped differently than the Old Testament Jews. And here, when the Bible tells us that Jesus must needs go through Samaria, it doesn't tell us that there was no other way around. There was nothing else that he could do. He had to travel through there, though he did not want to. What the Bible is telling us is that Jesus, though everyone else would travel around it, though everyone else would avoid Samaria, he made it a point to make sure that he went through Samaria. It says that he must needs go through Samaria. Notice verse 5. Then cometh he, that's Jesus, to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of the ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. And I want you to notice, you say, why does the Bible say that he must needs go through Samaria? Well, we're watching the greatest soul winner who ever lived, and we do have to say this, that Jesus had an advantage that you and I don't have, is that he was God in the flesh. And I believe that Jesus knew that he needed to go through Samaria because he was looking for opportunities while he was out and about, while he was out uh, traveling, while he was out just ministering and doing his daily life. He was looking for opportunities to preach the gospel, and he knew that he would run into a woman at the well who needed to hear the gospel. And here's what I want you to notice. The first lesson we can learn is the pursuit of the soul winner, is that Jesus was looking for opportunities to preach the gospel. And listen to me. I want you, and I hope you will become a soul winner at some point in your life, where you will schedule a time and prioritize a time in your life to go out and reach people with the gospel. If you say, Pastor Jimenez, what time do you recommend? Saturday morning. That's what I recommend. I recommend Saturday morning. You make that your soul winning time. And you say, why do you guys talk about Saturday morning being your main soul winning time? The reason that Saturday morning is our main soul winning time at Verity Baptist Church is because of the fact that our soul winning is meant to not only reach people with the gospel, but to carry out the entire Great Commission, which is to reach people with the gospel, to see them baptized, and to bring them into church for discipleship that they might grow 
grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. What we have found is that you are most likely to get a convert to come to church on Sunday when you get them saved on Saturday. Now you say, well, you have other soul winning times. Well, look, you can go soul winning whenever you want. You know, you say, why do you do Thursday? Because that's leading into the weekend. You say, why do you have Sunday? Honestly, I'll be honest with you. Sunday soul winning is meant for, uh, it was started at our church for a couple of reasons. It was started for those of you who commute. Our church is blessed with the fact that we have many people who commute from a long ways away. And we understand that it would be difficult for you to come out on Saturday for soul winning and go all the way back home and come back on Sunday for soul winning. So many of you come to church on Sunday and then you go soul winning Sunday afternoon. You stay for Sunday night church. You make a whole day out of it. Great. We love that. That's wonderful. That was created for you. You say, what's the other next purpose for Sunday soul winning? Next purpose for Sunday soul winning is for anyone who wants to do extra soul winning. You want to do more soul winning, do it. You say, do, if, if, I could only, if, if I could only go out once and I could go Saturday or Sunday, when would you recommend? Saturday. You say, why? Because, look, here's the truth. Most people aren't going to visit church on a Sunday night. And when you get somebody saved on Sunday, you're literally, Sunday afternoon, you're literally the furthest time away in the week from the next opportunity that they might come and visit. So if you can only choose one, choose Saturday. And, and we're talking about corporate soul winning here. When we're talking about going out as a, as a group of believers and, and, and going out. But what I want you to notice is that that's not the only time we go soul winning. Soul winning is not just something that's done on Saturday morning at 10 a.m. or on Sunday afternoon at 2 p.m. or on Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. Honestly, throughout your life, you ought to be looking for opportunities to preach the gospel and to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here, Jesus was traveling. He had a busy schedule. He had a busy ministry. He's going from Judea up into Galilee. He's trying to get things done. He's trying to get things accomplished. But he must needs go through Samaria. Why? Because he had the pursuit of a soul winner. He was looking for opportunities while he was out and about to reach people with the gospel. And look, you and I ought to be looking for those opportunities when we can talk to people, when we can invest into people, when we can preach the gospel. And sometimes you can't preach the gospel to somebody, but you can hand them a, a, a DVD, you can hand them an invitation, you can give them a verse, you can say something. Look, we ought to be looking. See, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was, was involved in this idea of seeking and saving and looking for people who needed to be saved. Now, you're there in John chapter 4. Keep your place there. That's our text this morning. But go to Luke chapter number 19. Say, well, well, should we be soul winning just in our daily lives? Or should we have a car, uh, a corporate scheduled soul winning? You should do both. You say, uh, what, what about how, if I do corporate uh, scheduled soul winning? Do corporate scheduled soul winning on Saturday and be looking for opportunities to preach the gospel throughout the week. You say, well, what if I just look for opportunities to preach the gospel and I don't do corporate soul winning? Here's what I've learned about that. You probably won't do soul winning. You're probably not going to be looking for opportunities to present the gospel if you're not faithfully attending a on-purpose time when you go out in the community and you reach people you don't know with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you need both. But look, our lives as Christians is to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is what Jesus did. Luke chapter 19, look at verse 10. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Notice what Jesus said of himself. He said, for the Son of Man, referring to himself, is come. Notice, to seek and to save that which was lost. You say, what should be the motto of every Christian? What should be the motto of Verity Baptist Church? What should be, if there was one phrase that people could put on us, could, could, could look at us and say, this is what these people are about. That phrase is to seek and to save. To look for people, to search for people, to look for opportunities. 
to preach the gospel to every creature. Go back to John chapter 4. I want you to notice that Jesus, and we're, we're looking at the pursuit of a soul winner. In his pursuit, in his search, in his attempt to seek and to save, he was looking for opportunities. As he was out and about, as he was traveling, as he was going through his daily life. You say, did Jesus have corporate times of soul winning? Absolutely. We see several times in the Gospels when he organizes 12 disciples and he sent them out in the community two by two into the highways and hedges to reach people with the Gospel. We see later on in his ministry where he had 70 uh, uh, disciples that he sent out two by two into the highways and hedges. He had corporate soul winning. But you know what? Just in his personal life, he was looking for opportunities to preach the Gospel. He was doing it as he was out and about. But I would like you to notice also that he was looking for opportunities even while he was tired. Notice verse 6. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore, notice what the Bible says, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. I want you to notice that the Bible tells us here that Jesus was weird with his journey. And look, you say, why are these uh, details added to the story? And I believe that these details are added to the story to let us know that Jesus, the Bible is clear, was God in the flesh. But he was also a human. And he had human limitations. And he, he, he got tired. And he got weary, and he was traveling, and he was walking, and he was uh, uh, accomplishing things. The Bible says that he was uh, being wearied with his journey. And look, I'm thankful for verses like these. I'm thankful. You don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we have not an high priest, referring to Jesus, which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus experienced every temptation, every trial, every heartache, every weariness, every human limitation that you and I uh, uh, experience, he experienced it too. So before you say, Pastor, you don't understand, I work hard all week long, and I'm just kind of too tired on Saturday to go so winning. Hey, so was Jesus. He being wearied with his journey, continued to say, I must needs go through Samaria. We used to call this, back when I was growing up, I think we should bring this back, we used to call these divine appointments. When you're out and about, and people happen to cross your path, realize this, just realize this, that every person who crosses your path will spend eternity somewhere, heaven or hell. And you may be the only person who has the truth of the gospel that can get them saved. So we see the pursuit of this soul winner. The greatest soul winner ever lived. He was out and about. He was tired, yet he was looking for opportunities to be able to present the gospel to people. I'd like you to notice also that Jesus was not only looking for opportunities, but that Jesus was looking for the unlovable. Notice John chapter 4 and verse 7. John 4, 7. There cometh a woman of Samaria... Again, remember that the Jews looked down upon the Samaritans. We'll see it here in the text. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. Notice he begins the, he's tired. He begins the conversation. He says, give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. The word meat in the Bible means food. The word meat in our in our uh, modern terminology, it would be what the Bible calls flesh. So it's just that they, they went out to get lunch for him. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Verse 9. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him. Notice what she says. She says, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? Notice what she says. For the Jews have no dealings with 
the Samaritans. She says, look, you, your people and my people don't, don't get along. Your people look down on my people. Your people don't even talk to our people. I'm not even sure why you're here. Usually your people just go around this whole area, and she's confused. She said, how is it that thou? She said, I can tell you're a Jew. I can tell by your demeanor. I can tell by the way you're dressed. I can tell by, by, by the way uh, you're traveling that you're not uh, one of us. You're not a Samaritan. She said, how is it that thou, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And here's what I want you to notice. And here's what I want you to understand, that Jesus was not only looking for the opportunities, but Jesus was looking for those who were unlovable, those who were unlovely, those who others maybe would look down on, others uh, would not want to spend time with, others would want to ignore. It's interesting to me when you do a compare and a contrast between John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, you find that Jesus was truly no respecter of persons. In John chapter 3, we see him speaking to Nicodemus, who was a man who was highly favored and accepted by the religious establishment. But in John chapter 4, we see him talking to a woman who was highly despised and rejected by the religious establishment. Jesus was trying to reach everyone. He wasn't just trying to reach uh, nice people, rich people. He wasn't just trying to reach people that were like him. And here's what you need to know about the ministry of Christ, is that people who were not like Jesus, like Jesus. I think sometimes we forget this in our ministries. Because we have this tendency to want to reach out to people that are like us. And reach out to people that we like. And reach out to people that we're comfortable with. And reach out to people that we want. You know, we only kind of reach out to the people that we'd like to be sitting next to us in a pew in the church service. But this was not Jesus. Jesus would give the gospel to the rich. He would give the gospel to the religious. He would give the gospel to the accepted. If Nicodemus came to his door, he would give him the time to give him the gospel. But he took the time to find the woman at the well. Why? Because he was looking for opportunities. And because he was looking for the unlovable. And this is a theme in the ministry of Christ. Go back to Luke chapter 15. We're just in Luke 10. You go back to Luke chapter 15. Look at verse 1. This is something that Jesus was actually criticized for in his ministry. Luke chapter 15 and verse 1 says this. Luke 15, 1 says, Then drew near unto him, that's Jesus. Notice, all the publicans... And sinners, for to hear them. This, this, is, this is the crowd that nobody likes. These are the outcasts. These are the unlovable, the unlovely. The Bible says that they drew near unto him, all the publicans and sinners, for to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, notice they're complaining and they're murmuring against Jesus. What are they saying? They're saying, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. One of the complaints that the religious people had about Jesus was that he was reaching out to people that no one else wanted to reach. And listen to me, in your life and in my life, we preach the gospel to everyone, but we should be looking for opportunities to find people that are unlikely. We should be looking for opportunities to find people that others look down upon. We should be looking for opportunities to find people. You say, they're not like us, but let's just reach them anyway. Because people who are not like Jesus like Jesus. And you know, people who are not like you will like Jesus too if you'd bring the gospel to them. I'm excited about 
and, and I don't know how this is going to work out. I've already started to uh, talk to some people and, and look at some situations, but I, I'm, I'm hoping that our church can start a prison ministry. I'm really excited about us being able to start a, a prison ministry. You say, why wouldn't we be able to start a prison ministry? Well, our church has a reputation, and the government doesn't seem to like us very much. Uh, so, you know, sometimes we might have to start it under a different name, you know? I mean, like, Verily Ministries or something. Um, but but you, you say, Pastor, why, you know, you want to go in to... And, and talk, you know, you, 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 what do you want to do? You know, gather some guys and gather some ladies and go preach the gospel to people in prisons. Why, why would you want to do that? You know what? Because we need to find people that aren't like us. You say, well, I'm not, I don't want to go preach. Look, it, when I said that, if in your mind, I don't, I don't want to bring those people to church. There's something wrong with you. There's a problem with you. There's a problem with your heart. People that weren't like Christ liked Christ. And look, it is our job to find those. You say, well, we got to reach everybody. Yeah, but you know what? We need to on purpose look for those who are not loved, who have been uh, forgotten about, who have been outcasted, and make sure we bring the gospel to them. What? You say, because that's what Jesus did. Uh, you're going to be you're gonna be one of those churches? Let people say whatever they want. Let them, let, let them uh, talk ill of us and say, well, uh, he eateth, he receiveth sinners. You know what? We are a spiritual hospital looking for people who need the Savior. We see that Jesus was in pursuit. He was searching. He was looking for opportunities to get people saved while out and about, while he was tired, and he was looking for those who were outcasts, who were unlovely and unlovable, and he was making an effort to reach them. Why don't you notice, secondly, tonight, this morning, excuse me, it's been a long week for me. Not only do we see the pursuit of the soul winner, but I want you to notice we see the presentation of the soul winner. And here's what's really interesting. If you go to John chapter 4, you know, we often uh, tell our soul winners and we train our soul winners to have a presentation ready, that they should have a plan to present the gospel. That they should have points and verses and, 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 and have an idea of what verses they're going to go to and how they're going to explain it and how they're going to uh, uh, illustrate it and things like that. What I love about John chapter 4 is that we not only get to listen in on a conversation between the Lord Jesus Christ and this woman, but we get to uh, listen in on a uh, presentation of the gospel by the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and sometimes people have even uh, criticized us for our gospel presentation. Oh, you guys have this gospel plan. It should just come from the heart or something like that. You know, you know what? You, there's nothing wrong to, to have a plan and to be ready to be able to do a good job with the presentation of the gospel. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus had a presentation that covers all the basic things that we teach our soul winners. If you go through our soul winning uh, seminar and you find all the different steps and things that we ask you to cover, you'll find that Jesus covered all the exact same things. And by the way, that's on purpose, <laughs> We're learning from Jesus. You say, what did he cover? Well, notice, first of all, he explains that salvation is a gift. John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God. He said, if you knew that God had a gift, and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou would have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. He said, if thou knewest the gift of God, you would have asked for it, and he would have given thee living water. So notice, he first explains to her that salvation is a gift. Doesn't that sound like the gospel presentation that we give out? We don't, don't we go out and tell people for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life? Don't we tell people, uh, uh, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God? 
Not of works, lest any man should boast. And by the way, you say, what's the point of telling people salvation is a gift? The point of telling people that salvation is a gift is to explain to them that you don't earn it. You don't work for it. You don't pay for it. A gift, by definition, is free. Someone else pays for it, but you receive it without earning it, without working for it. Look, this goes against every false religion of our day. Name the false religion. Name the religion. Name the religion. And look, most religions today are going to teach you you have to earn it, you have to work for it. Most Jews are going to tell you you have to get baptized, you have to repent of your sins, which means turning away from your sins. They're going to tell you you have to go to the confessional booth. They're going to tell you you have to uh, take communion. They're going to tell you you have to do the sacraments. They're going to tell you you have to get baptized. They're going to tell you you have to quit sinning. They're, they're going to give you all sorts of things and tell you you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. Look, whenever anybody tells you you have to do something in order to be saved, that's not a gift. That's earning it. That's working for it. But Jesus says, look, if thou knewest the gift of God, what's the idea? It's free. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Notice in his presentation, he explains that salvation is a gift. Notice also in his presentation, he explains that salvation must be asked for. Look at, look at verse 10 again. Jesus answered and said unto her, if thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink. Notice what he says. He says, thou wouldest have asked of him. Today we've got some really mature soul winners. They go out soul winning for three weeks, they think they got it all figured out. You know, and today we've got all these, these, these punk soul winners who want to criticize and say, you don't have to pray the sinner's prayer. You don't have to, no one, and no one has to actually ask for the gift. Well, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that you must be a greater soul winner than the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you have to ask for it, it's not a gift. That's so stupid. If you have to ask for it, then you earn it. Okay, so when, uh, you know, homeless people go out who aren't working, and look, and you say, you're going to start a prison ministry, how about a homeless ministry? The Bible says to not feed those who will not eat. Uh, To not feed those who will not work, excuse me. Feed those who will not eat. That doesn't make sense. You say, why don't, why don't you guys go feed the homeless? Because we're, we're not supposed to feed people who won't work. They, they need to go work. And you say, well, they've got problems and they got this and they got that. Look, we, we'll, we'll try to get them saved. We'll try to help them get off drugs and alcohol, but they need to go work. And, and, and prisons, look, and, and you know, that's a, I'm going to get on a whole other tangent, but prisons are so unscriptural. You don't find a prison in the Bible. All right, it's the prison industrial complex is what you have in the United States of America. That's a sermon for another day. But let me just say this. So people say, oh, well, if you ask for it, it's not. So, okay, so if I'm just a lazy bum, and then I go down to the welfare office, and I sign up for uh, free money, and I ask for it, not, did I earn it now? Did I work for it? Look, asking for a gift doesn't mean you earn it. That's stupid. And today people say, oh, you don't have to ask for it. Well, you must be smarter than Jesus. You must be greater than Jesus. Because he told this woman, if you had known about the gift, thou wouldest have asked of him. You would have asked for it, and he would have given it thee. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised from, from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I want you to notice that he emphasized the fact that salvation was a gift, and he emphasized the fact that salvation must be asked for. You must call upon Jesus to save you. You must ask him to save you. You must call upon him to save you. You must ask for the gift. 
Notice, thirdly, go, you're there in John 4. Look at verse 11. The woman said unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing, nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Thou Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? And remember, I, I talked about doing a compare and contrast between Nicodemus and, and, uh, and, and the woman at the well. Nicodemus, is, the story is found in John 3. Woman at the well, story is found in John 4. Here's the contrast. One was accepted by the religious establishment. One was despised by the religious establishment. Here's the comparison. Both did not understand the spiritual meaning, and both took the words of Jesus as a physical meaning. Remember, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he said, how can a man, being, uh, being old, enter again into his mother's womb? He didn't understand the, the, the idea. He thought Jesus was talking about a physical second birth. Well, notice, Jesus is using this example of the water to the woman. He says, if you would have known, you would have asked, and he would have given me living water. And she says, so that was nothing to draw with. She says, you don't even have a bucket. You know, just, just totally just doesn't get it. That was nothing to draw. And the well is deep from whence then hast thou that living water. Art thou greater than our father Jacob? She's just, she thinks he's talking about physical water. And this goes back to the idea that unsaved people cannot understand spiritual things. The natural man understands not the things of the Spirit of God. They need, they need somebody to explain to them the spiritual work. But notice what he explains to her, verse 13. So we, we, we're, we're, we're with Jesus' soul winner. We're being Jesus' silent partner. And we see him explain that salvation is a gift. We see him explain that salvation must be asked for, that you must call upon Christ to save you. Thirdly, we see him explain eternal security, everlasting life. Look at verse 13. Because she thinks he's talking about the water. He says, if, if thou would have known, uh, if thou knew it was the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou would have asked of him. And he would have given thee living water. And she says, you don't even have a bucket. The, the well is deep. How are you going to give me water? She's like, you need me. You, she's like, did you ask me for water? She's all confused. And she, she thinks he's talking about the physical water. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water, talking about the physical water, shall thirst again. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, there are some physical needs that you have physically in your life, but here's the problem, and please listen to this. Here's the problem with the physical needs, is that when you fulfill that need, you will have to fulfill it again. Because when you get thirsty and you drink water, here's what happens. Eventually you get thirsty again. Because when you get hungry and you eat, here's a problem. Eventually you get hungry again. He's saying you're trying to fulfill, and we're going to see here in a second how she's doing that. You're trying to fulfill a, in a, 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 a void that you have in your life, a hunger that you have in your life, a thirst that you have in your life. You're trying to fulfill that uh, uh, physically. But the problem with that is that whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Verse 14. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him, but the water that I shall give him, there's a very important aspect of eternal security here. It's not just that you'll never lose your salvation, not just that you'll never thirst. Is that salvation, yes, it's true that salvation will never be lost and, 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 and it'll never end and it'll never terminate. But salvation itself will produce something inside of you that I shall give him, shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And we don't have time to go there, but if you reference back that well of water, it's very clear in other teachings from Jesus that he is referring to the Holy Spirit of God. 
And, and I want you to understand that because there's a very important aspect of salvation here. There's a difference between those of you that are saved and those of you that are not saved. When you are not saved, all you are is physical hungers, physical needs, trying to be fulfilled in a physical way. When you are saved, you still have physical hungers. You still have physical needs. And sometimes we try to fulfill them in a physical way. But the difference is that when you've got the Holy Spirit of God, God can now fulfill that need. And when God, when you allow God to fulfill your needs, see, it's not, he doesn't just want to save you spiritually. He wants to fulfill you spiritually. He says it's a well of water springing up into everlasting life. He explains to her, look, it's everlasting. It's a, he, and, he, and he's using the illustration saying, if you drink water, you're going to get thirsty again. But if you get saved, you'll, if you drink the living water, you'll never need to drink again. You'll never thirst again. John 5.10, you have to turn there, it says this, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself, and he that believeth not God hath made him liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. What's that record? Verse 11, and this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Look, salvation is everlasting, it's eternal. You can't lose. I, I realize that people today, go, go to John chapter 10, you're there in John uh, chapter 4, just flip a few pages over. John chapter 10. I realize today that most religions will tell you that you can uh, lose your salvation or you can walk away from your, you know, some religions will tell you, if you, if you live a sinful life, you'll lose it. Other religions, because we'll show them verses that say everlasting life, Titus 1, 2, and hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised for the world began. So they'll say, well, no, God will never take it from you but you can walk away from it. So he won't take salvation from you, but you can give it back. And they'll say like, it's like if you and God are, are, are holding hands and you're walking down the road together and you can just kind of let go of God. Well, here's the problem with that. You can try all you want to let go of God and he's not going to let go of you. You say, prove that from the Bible. John chapter 10, verse 28. Notice what Jesus said. And I give unto them eternal life. Look at the context. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Well, see, you're walking on the road with God, with Jesus holding hands, and, and you can uh, uh, let go. Well, here's the thing. He said, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Look, once you're saved, you can get yourself unsaved if you tried. You can get away from God if you wanted to. Now, that doesn't mean that you can live however you want. It doesn't mean that your Heavenly Father is not going to give you a spiritual spanking when you're not doing right. What it means is that once you drink of the living water, you will never thirst again because it will create in you a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So notice, when we're the silent partner of the Lord Jesus Christ, notice what he emphasizes. He emphasizes that salvation is a gift. He emphasizes that salvation needs to be called for. He emphasizes that salvation will last forever. Doesn't that sound like... What we do? Doesn't that sound like the Soul Wing Seminar, Very Baptist Church? You say, why? Because, look, we're not doing anything different today than, than what Jesus started. In fact, all we're doing is continuing on the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, fourthly, if you go back to John chapter 4, he explains to her that she is a sinner. There is no good gospel presentation that doesn't deal with people's sin. No one is ready to be saved until they realize that they are a sinner in need of salvation. John 4.15, the woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither uh, come hither to draw. Jesus said unto her, Now look, I wouldn't advise you to do this. Jesus is God. He knows things about this woman that you and I don't know. So he deals with her in a very unique way. You can't, I can't do this. 
You know, we just, tell, we just take people to Romans 3.10, for all have sinned and come short you know, of the glory of God. You know, if there's none righteous, and not one. We, we take them to those verses and just show people that they're sinners. Jesus does it in a, in a very impressionable way. Look at verse 16. Jesus said unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. So no, she just said, Hey, I want to receive this gift. Give it to me. But he's like, No, wait, wait a second. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. He says, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. Notice what he says in verse 18. For thou hast had five husbands. I mean, is this, is this like, is she like a Hollywood star or something? Like, what? Five husbands? For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou uh, hast is not thy husband, and that saidest thou truly. Notice, he says, You've had five husbands, and you're currently shacking up with someone you're not even married to. And by the way, I'm not preaching about this, but this verse proves that living with someone is not, doesn't equate marriage in the eyes of God. People go around and say, well, why do I need to get some, why do I need to get some license in the sense that we're married, we love each other, we're living together. Well, Jesus didn't, didn't see it that way. That's right. he, said, he says, you, you've had five husbands, the guy you're married to, you're not even married, you're living with, you're not even married to. He whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that sense, is thou truly. He says, yeah, you're right, you got no husband. You have five husbands, and you're shagging up with someone you're not even uh, uh, married to. And notice, he deals with her sin. Now, we're going to come back to that in a minute. But I want you to notice, he deals with her sin. In his gospel presentation, he deals with her sin. We see the same thing with Nicodemus. Remember, a Jewish man who thought that his birth would bring him salvation. Jesus says, your physical birth means nothing. You must be born again. And what you'll find when you go, when you're Jesus' silent partner, and we're going to see him give the gospel lots through this series, you know what you find? Is that he's always faithful to deal with the sins of men. Because you're not ready. No one is ready to be saved. No one is ready to be saved until they've dealt with their sin. That they are a sinner in need of salvation. Let me give you the, the, the last thing we see here. He not only explains to her that salvation is a gift and that it must be asked for and that it's everlasting and that she is a sinner in need of salvation, but he explains to her that he is the Savior. Notice John 4, verse 25. We're going to come back. We skipped a few verses. We're going to come back to those in a minute. Notice verse 25. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. Now, I just want you to notice, the Bible, it's its own dictionary. The Bible always defines itself for us. You say, what does the word Messiahs mean? I need to go open up some Bible dictionary to find out. You need to open up Bible dictionary. The Bible tells us right now, right, right there what it means. I know that, and this is just one example. There's many examples of this. She says, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. Now look, he's called the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the word Christ mean? It means Messiah. You understand that? It's not like Christ was his last name. You know, Jesus' first name, Christ was last name. Christ was a title... That's why it's ridiculous today. You've got dispensationalists like Sam Gibbons saying, Jesus isn't my Messiah. Is he, is he your Christ? Because that's what I'm, he's a Messiah. I know that Messiah's cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. So notice what she says. She says, I know that the Christ is coming. I know that Messiah's cometh. Look at verse 26. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. I that speak unto thee am who? He says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. And look, it's very important. It's very important that in our gospel presentation, we must make sure that we are teaching people what the true salvation is and who the true Savior is. 
Notice the emphasis in verse 10. Go back to verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God. So he said, if you, you need to understand what salvation is and who it is that saith to thee. So you need to be right on salvation and you need to be right on the Savior. Look, when we're out preaching the gospel, you need to make sure that you are preaching the gospel appropriately in regards to salvation. What is salvation? Salvation is forgiveness of your sins, that you can receive it. By, by no works, it's a free gift. Once you have it, you can't lose it. But then you must also make sure that we emphasize the Savior. Jesus was God in the flesh. He died in your place. We must have both to be saved. You must have the right salvation and you must have the right Savior. You must emphasize the Savior. Look, don't have a gospel presentation where you don't emphasize the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and why He did it. Because we need, He explained, He said, look, I, I am He. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the one that you are looking for to come. Look at verse 15, John chapter 4, 15. We're listening in on the story, on this conversation between the woman at the well and the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw the pursuit of the soul winner. Jesus was looking for opportunities, and he was looking for those who were unlovable. We saw the presentation of the soul winner. We saw that he explained that it was a gift, that it must be asked for, that it was everlasting, that uh, she was a sinner, and that he was the Savior. I'd like to notice, thirdly, this morning, the perception of the soul winner. And you say, what do you mean by that perception? It means that if you're going to be a soul winner who's a good soul winner, you're going to have to have some discernment as to how you interact with people. Because notice there, there are two major areas in this presentation that Jesus could have. Now, he didn't, of course. But where he could have got derailed or where you and I might get derailed in our gospel presentation. The first one is this. Jesus had the discernment to know when she was ready to get saved. Because notice, he explains to her that if you drink of this water, you'll thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I have to give you, you'll never thirst again. She's still thinking physical. She's saying, is there some sort of magical water out there that I can drink of and I'll never thirst again? And she says, give me, notice verse 15, the woman saith unto him, sir, give me this water. That I thirst not. You say, oh, is she ready to get saved? No, she's still on the physical. Neither come hither to draw. She says, it's a lot of work to come out here every day and draw water. It's a lot of work to come out here every day in the well and put this bucket down and bring water out. It's a lot of work. If you've got some sort of magical water that'll make it so that I'm never thirsty, give me. But notice, this lady, like many gospel presentations, she's saying, Let's, uh, give it to me. Let's pray. I'm ready to pray. And you know what? Jesus could have prayed a sinner's prayer with this lady. But he had the discernment not to do so because he understood that she was not ready to get saved. Look at verse 16. She's saying, give me this water. I mean, wouldn't you and I be saying like, okay, well, look, repeat after me. Dear Jesus. (laughs) Notice what he says. Jesus says unto her, go call thy husband. He begins the conversation dealing with her sin. You say, why? Because Jesus had the discernment. Look, Jesus was not out trying to get have prayers with people. So he could come back and brag to his disciples, oh, I got someone to pray with me. This lady would have prayed, but she wasn't ready. Jesus had the discernment to know when she was ready to get saved. You say, how did he know when she was ready? Well, other than the fact that he's God, here's how he knew. He listened to her speak. And he understood that she didn't understand. She didn't get it. 
And look, when we're out soul winning and we're giving the gospel to people, as people are talking to us and communicating with us, we need to have the discernment to, does, does, this, people, does this person get it? Do they understand it? This is why we teach our soul winners to ask questions. And look, as a soul winner, you ought to be engaged in conversation, asking questions, listening to them, answer your questions. Here's what soul winners do. And look, you say, are you trying to pick on me? Yes, I am. Because you know what? The soul winners who want to go out there and just get a prayer so that they can come back and tell people that they got a prayer, you know what they do? When they finally are forced to ask a question, they'll quickly give the person the answer. Or they'll ask a question in the way where, like, they're given the answer. Now listen, I want to make sure you understand. You, you believe that salvation is a free gift that you don't have to earn, just like I showed you a minute ago, right? Okay, look, you, you gave them all the answers. You know, preach the gospel to them and then ask them, hey, so what do you think, of, what do you believe about this? You believe that? And let them answer. You know, I, I get to the end of my, car, uh, my gospel presentation. Before I ever pray with someone, I say, hey, like, let me, let me, I've showed you several things from the Bible. I don't know if you noticed, but they all came straight out of the Bible. Let me just ask you a couple questions. Do you, believe, do you believe what I showed you? Do you believe that you're a sinner? I don't say, hey, you believe that you're a sinner just like I showed you in Romans 3.10, right? Hey, do, do you believe you're a sinner? Do you believe you're a sinner? I mean, do you believe this? I, I tell, I'm not a used car salesman here. I'm not trying to get some sort of, I'm not going to get some, um, you know, uh, uh, money because I get you to pray a prayer. I, I want to make sure you get this. You, do you believe that you can lose yourself? Do you believe that you have to earn? Let people talk. Because if you're asking questions and they're just like, yeah, you know, hey, so now that I showed you this, you know, let me make sure you understand. You know, let me ask you a question. What do you think it takes for someone to go to heaven? And they're like, well, you know, you got to get baptized. It's like, they're not ready. <laughs> they're not ready. And Jesus had the discernment to know when this lady was ready or not. Notice he also had the discernment to not get off on a rabbit's trail. No, notice verse 19. It's interesting because he deals with her sin, right? Go and call thy husband. He says, I don't have a husband. He's like, yeah, I know. You have five husbands and the guy you're shagging up with, you're not even married to him. And then immediately, look, whenever you start dealing with people's sins, immediately they try to just kind of like change the conversation. Verse 19. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Yeah. Look at verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say, now look, she's, she's pointing to Mount Gerizim. If you remember in the Old Testament, you had those two famous mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. The law was given, the law, the curse and the blessings. Mount Ebal was the mount of cursing, and Mount Gerizim was the mount of blessings. If you remember, Moses gave the law. Joshua would go back and put the people on the mountains after the whole episode with Achan. She's pointing at Mount Gerizim, and she's saying, she's saying, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is this place where men ought to worship. And, and now she, she, he, he starts dealing with her in a very personal, intimate way. Hey, you, you realize, you realize that your baptism, your religion, how good a person, none of that matters in regards to salvation. If you've not, if you've not called upon Christ to save you, look, if you're trusting in your works, you're going to die and go to hell. You tell people that, and all of a sudden they're like, yeah, but um, did, uh, did, did Adam have a belly button? <laughs> well, what, what does the Bible say about UFOs? And you know what? Some of you answer those stupid questions. 
You, you start dealing with someone kind of intimately and you start kind of getting down and the Holy Spirit's working. And you know what? All of a sudden, she's real religious and she has some sort of religious theological question. Well, our fathers worship in this mountain and ye say, and it's like, when did Jesus say anything about a mountain? And ye say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship? Look, she, she tries to veer off the conversation on some big rabbit trail, and Jesus had the discernment. You say, what did Jesus do? Here's what he does. He answers her question, and he moves on. He doesn't get all tangled up. Look at verse 21. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. He's like, you don't even know what you're talking about. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Now, let me just go ahead and explain this to you uh, because we're talking about the woman at the well, and I think it's good for you to understand what's happening here. And the reason that she brings this up is because the Samaritans, remember the Samaritans were not only uh, an outcast due to their race, you know, and I'm using the word race by human standards because there is no race in the Bible. We're all, we're the human race. But they were outcasts based on their ethnicity because they were half-breed, half-Jew, half-Gentiles, but they were also outcasts because of their religion. See, the Samaritans only acknowledged what they referred to as the Torah. They acknowledged Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy as God's word, and they rejected the rest. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, none of that was acknowledged to them as God's word. They only uh, acknowledged the first five books of the Bible. They called it the Torah or the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Because of, uh, because of this, they rejected Jerusalem as the place or the center of worship to God. Because in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there is no mention of Jerusalem. Now, there is a hint towards Jerusalem when Melchizedek, uh, the high priest of Salem, which is Jerusalem, you know, there's a hint towards it in the Torah, but in the Torah, there's no mention to Jerusalem being the center of God's worship, but there is a mention to Mount Gerizim and Mount, uh, uh, Mount Ebal. I was actually here. I was on Mount Gerizim, and I was at the woman at the well when we were in Palestine for the Beyond Jordan documentary. We went to uh, the, the woman at the well, to the well there, and drank of the water, and we went up to Mount Gerizim. And, and this is what she's referring to. She's saying, because she's saying, you know, Mount Gerizim is mentioned in Genesis through Deuteronomy as the place of God's blessing. So the Samaritans made Mount Gerizim the center of their worship. And if you go there, you'll find that there's actually Samaritan uh, uh, village, you know, uh, old villages and, and things that, that are left there from that. And, she, and there's this, this theological argument. Should we worship in Mount Gerizim or should we worship in Mount Jerusalem? And, and Jesus just, he answers her question. He kind of shuts her down. He says, he, he says, look, there's coming a day when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know, not what. Uh, uh, verse 22, we know what we worship. And he, and he basically just says for salvation of the Jews, he's saying, look, the Jews were right. Jerusalem in the Old Testament was the center of God's worship. But he said, you know what? It doesn't matter. Because I'm bringing in a New Testament. I'm bringing a new thing. And it doesn't matter whether you worship. It's not about a mountain. Verse 23. But the hour cometh, and now is. He says, look, 
Look, if you want to ask me a theological question about under the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament, were the Jews right or were the Samaritans right? Should the center of God's worship be in Jerusalem or should it be in Mount Gerizim? He says, the Jews were right. Salvation is of the Jews. But he says, you know what? The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He says, in the New Covenant, it's not about a place. It's not about a building. It's not about a location. It's about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And he answers a question, and he just gets right back to the gospel. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. Verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So notice, he has a discernment to know when someone's ready and not ready. And he has a discernment to not get off on a rabbit's trail and start answering some weird question. And he has a discernment to just... You know, he answers your question, he gets back to the gospel. He answers your question, he gets back to the gospel. Now, just real quickly, I don't, I don't, we're, we're done as far as the conversation with this woman. But in this plot of Jesus and the woman of the well, there's a smaller subplot of Jesus and his disciples. And I want to just focus it on that. We're going to do that really quickly and we'll be done. He's giving them lessons about soul winning. I want you to notice, just in conclusion, in conclusion, if you'd like to jot these down, there's several things. First of all, we see the renewal of the soul winner. Notice verse 25. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I have speak unto thee, am he. And upon this came his disciples. Because remember, they were out getting lunch. So now they show up. Now they show up for lunch. And marveled that he talked with the woman. Why are they marveling? Because he's talking to a Samaritan woman. This is a no-no. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot. It's interesting to me. She left what was physical, and now she's interested in the spiritual, and went her way into the city and said to the men, Come and see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. We'll come back to that in a second. There was a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. Remember, they went to get him lunch. In the meanwhile, remember at the beginning of the story, he was wearied with his journey. He was tired. He was hungry. It was lunchtime. They went out to get food. They bring him food. They said, Master, eat. But his disciples said unto him, uh, excuse me, but he said unto them, verse 32, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another. They're like Nicodemus and the woman at the well. They don't get the spiritual application. They're just thinking physical. Have any man brought him out to eat? Like We were going to go buy him lunch. Did somebody bring him lunch? Verse 34. Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. You know what we see here? We see the renewal of the soul winner. Jesus at the beginning, because remember, he's a human being. At the beginning of the story, he's tired, he's hungry. He's weird with his journey. But then he gets this woman, he gives her the gospel, and she gets saved. Now he's renewed. He's like, lunch? I don't need lunch. I got meat to eat ye know not of. He said, I'm re-energized. I'm ready to go. You know, some of you are discouraged with your soul winning. You're discouraged with the Christian life. You're discouraged with your walk with God. You're spiritually tired. You're spiritually hungry. You say, what do you need? You need to go find yourself a Samaritan woman and get her saved. It'll renew you. It'll rejuvenate you. He says, look, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. You say, I haven't got anybody saved in a long time. Go find some ghetto Go find some poor person. Go find someone who's least like you. And they'll probably want to hear it. They'll probably want to hear that they can be forgiven. 
that they can receive salvation. The quote of the bulletin says, there's no exercise better for the heart than the reaching down and lifting up of people. So we see the renewal of the soul winners. Notice, secondly, we see the reaping of the soul winners. Verse 35. This is the conversation, the subplot between Jesus and his disciples. Say, say not ye that there are, there, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the field, for they are white already to harvest. Notice, he talks about urgency. He says, we have to reap the harvest. We need to bring it in. He said, don't sit there and say that there's four months left. He says, lift up your eyes and look on the field. Matthew 9, 36, you have to turn there, but it says this. But when Jesus, when, when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. You say, I'm not excited about soul winning. Maybe you need to just open your eyes a little bit. Maybe you need to lift up your eyes and look on the fields and realize that they are white already to harvest. Here's all I'm telling you. There are people all over the city, all over this county, all over the state that would get saved if you would bring them the gospel. You see the renewal of the soul winner. We see the reaping. And we see Jesus is talking to his disciples. Part of me wonders if his disciples walked by this lady. Remember, they were leaving the well to go get him lunch. She was coming to the well. I wonder if they, and the Bible doesn't tell us this, but part of me wonders, did they just walk right by each other? And they were just busy getting lunch. And he's telling them, hey, lift up your eyes. And look on the fields. There's more important things than food. For they are white already to harvest, nor is the reward of the soul. In verse 36. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit. You say, where do I get my wages? Unto life eternal. There, there's heavenly rewards for the work we do here. That both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true. One soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye are entered into their labor. So we see the reward, that there is a reward. We see that there is rejoicing and soul winning when we reach people with the gospel. Look, in heaven you'll be glad you gave up your Saturdays to go soul winning. No one's going to get to heaven and say, man, you know what? I wish I would have just gone fishing one more time. But there's going to be lots of people who are going to say, man, I wish I would have gone fishing for men. Notice lastly the result for soul winners, verse 28. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men. It's interesting. She said to the men. Look, everything in the Bible is in there for a reason. Why does the Bible say, remember, this lady was married five times and she's shacking up with a guy she's not married to. And she said to the men, she said, why did she go to the men? That's probably all the people she knew in the city. Come and see a man which told me all things ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. You know what the result of soul winning is? The fact that we reach people who are sinners, who are broken, who have issues, who have problems, who have major things in their life that need to be dealt with. We reach them with the gospel and then they go and reach others. Look at verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him 
For the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all things ever I did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days, and many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and we know that this indeed the, uh, that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And it's interesting, it's interesting, because we see a woman... We see a woman who was attempting to fill a void in her life, a physical void. Jesus hinted at it. He said, you're thirsty, but you'll thirst again. And this lady was trying to fill it with men. She was married, but eventually she got thirsty again. She married again. She filled that need. But then she got thirsty again. She married again. And she got thirsty again. She married again. She got thirsty again. She married again. She got thirsty again. Now she's not even married to the guy, just living with him. This is how the world lives their lives. You want to know why people, their drugs, alcohol, fornication, pornography, adultery, all these things, you want to know why these things are around? Because people are trying to fill a void that only God can fill. And look, you have the answer and I have the answer. So maybe as you're going through your journey, maybe as you're traveling through life, maybe as you're making your appointments and you find yourself hungry and tired, take the time and take the opportunities with the woman at the well, with that guy at your job, with that clerk at the grocery store, with those people that God sets these divine appointments for. Because it's our job, like the Lord Jesus Christ, to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Lord, thank you for allowing us to be able to study not just the teachings of Jesus and the parables of Jesus, but to just watch him interact with people. And Lord, I pray that you would make us soul conscious. Lord, I ask for myself. I pray you'd help me as I, as I just... Go through life as I talk to people and deal with people. I pray you'd help me. I pray you'd help all of us to be mindful of the spiritual condition. Lord, I pray that you help us as we come along people who are not like us. It's easy for us to look down on them sometimes and say, well, look at them. They're trying to fulfill every physical lust and every physical need. It's easy for us to be hypocritical and look down on them. Help us, Lord, to realize They're just like the woman at the well. They're just searching for something. They think the world will give it to them, and it never will. It will never satisfy. Lord, help us to break.